Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. been waiting for. Indeed, in his preaching, he was instilling in God's people a renewed confidence in the Messiah imminent arrival. God knew that prophecies given by the predecessors about God's anointed one would soon come to pass. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the Lord of, of this year's favor. In his life's ministry, Jesus did all of these very things. He showed himself to be the Lord's anointed one. Surely then there would have been for John and Israel nothing but confidence in Jesus' as the Lord's promised one. But not so. Even as confident as John was about the Messiah's arrival, he still faced doubts that Jesus was the one. Like so many expected ones in Israel, John wondered if Jesus really was the Lord's anointed or if he was just still waiting. John and all those who had come before Jesus did not have the privilege we have today of clearly seeing that Christ is fulfillment of the prophet's many predictions. Today, as we light the third candle of Advent, we thank God for our place in redemptive history on this side of the cross. And yet, just as the middle candle of Advent reminds us that we are halfway to Christmas, it also reminds us that Christ's first coming was also only a halfway point in God's plan. For though we have great confidence in Christ's return, even with that confidence there can be doubts. Sometimes we struggle to see God's plan to bring good news to the poor. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Confident though we may be, at times it is difficult for us in a fallen world to picture the glory of Christ's eternal reign. But God's promise is that one day we will have perfect clarity. The mirror will no longer be dim. We will behold God's anointed one ruling forever. Please pray with me. All-knowing Father, we praise you for the wisdom of your plan to send Jesus to save your people and for your plan to send him once again to reign. We are confident in his coming again, yet our faith is sometimes small. Enlarge our faith in times when we are plagued with doubt. We place our hope in you. In the name of your anointed one, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We're thrilled to be able to share this time with you. My name is Brock Falk. I'm part of the ministry staff here at Heritage. And whether you're one of our members or one of our guests, it is our joy to be able to have Advent Sunday or the third Sunday of Advent here and to be together for this commemoration, this celebration, and as we remember what's so important about this season. I, I'm grateful to my friends Sean and Christy Chisholm for leading our Advent reading and candle lighting this morning. I realize that for some of you, especially if you've been part of Heritage uh, for a long time, this, this may be the first time that you have ever celebrated Advent, which is the season that leads up to the 12 days of Christmas. And it's new for us around here, but it is certainly not a new concept. In fact, Advent is a centuries-old Christian tradition intended to help our hearts make room for Jesus. If, if Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, then Advent, this season we're in building up to that celebration, helps us to recall and reflect what it means for Jesus to be born, why the world needed Jesus to be born. We remember that the world was full of darkness and that Jesus is the light of the world that is bringing light into the world. But Advent is also, in addition to being a chance to commemorate Jesus' birth, it's also an opportunity for us to anticipate Jesus' return, which hasn't happened yet. And this is why we're lighting Advent candles during this season, one additional candle every week. Because for us, this is representing the light that Jesus is bringing progressively, continually into the world. And I don't know if you could tell from the video up here, but you may be able to notice that this week the candle is a different color than all the other candles. This week our candle is pink, and that's because during the third week of Advent, traditionally we're invited to focus our attention on joy. Now there's a lot of talk about joy during the holidays. I've noticed recently that McDonald's will sell you a soft drink, and it says the joy is included when you buy a drink at McDonald's. Uh, there's also, they promise to include joy in the packaging at some, with some furniture that you can purchase from Ikea right now. Uh, we sing songs during this season that include a lot of references to joy. We talk about joy to the world. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. There's another one that says, O come all ye faithful joyful and triumphant. In fact, there's one Christmas song that says, and you may not sing this one very often, but you know it. It says, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, which is very formal old English language, right? But it means don't let anything steal your joy. Don't let anything discourage you. Don't let anything take joy away from you. And the point of all of these hymns, the point of all of these carols that we sing is that the birth of Jesus is the greatest news of all. And in fact, when the angels appeared, and we sang this about this just a moment ago, the heavenly chorus came and appeared to these shepherds who were watching over their flocks at night. And the angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid because I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. 2,000 years ago. That's an old story, isn't it? I mean, those events happened a long time ago now, and while they may have been moments that brought great joy to the people who were directly involved in those stories and the people who heard from the firsthand witnesses that were involved in those stories, I mean, listening to one of those shepherds tell about the, the, the angel showing up and, and describing what was happening must have been incredible to hear, but it's more challenging for us. 
with the historical distance, with the time that has passed, it's more challenging for us to hold on to the joy of that event as we continue waiting for Jesus to come back. Because the truth of the matter is that joy isn't easy. And joy isn't something that comes naturally. In fact, the problem that we run into when we try to focus on joy, when we try to attain joy, the problem we run into is that the human brain is constantly being conditioned to focus on what's negative, to focus on what's threatening. We are constantly being bombarded with messages about threats to what joy might exist. And I bet there's no need for me to make a list for you. There's no need for me to rehash all of the reasons that people feel more and more anxiety, more and more cynicism, more and more fear. I mean, if you talked about the tensions and the challenges and the arguments and the tragedies that are facing our communities, you could turn right back around and make a a list of your own, of the things that are happening in your life and your family and the difficulties that are bringing challenge for you. And you, you add all of that up, you roll all of that together, and the effects of all of that trauma and all of that fear-mongering, it's easy to see how it's actually simpler to be sad. It's easier to be cynical in our world than it is to be cheerful and optimistic. And so if, if cynicism is easy, if pessimism is simple, if sadness is natural, then what are we doing when we sing all of these songs about joy? When we sing these Christmas songs, these carols, what are we trying to accomplish there? Like, are we, are we trying to talk ourselves into it? Are we being naive? Are we being dismissive? Is it even possible to let nothing you dismay? Like, is it possible to not let anything steal your joy? When we sing joy to the world, is that just wishful thinking? Are we living in denial of all of the realities around us? Are we trying to fool ourselves into forgetting about how dark things are? Or is there something else that's going on? Is there something different that's happening here? This morning, I want to point your attention toward a passage of Scripture in the New Testament portion of your Bible in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible with you or the Heritage app on your phone, if you go into that app and click the Bible icon down at the bottom, it'll take you directly to the passage that we're studying together today. But I want to show you this passage because it is a letter that is specifically written to people who are living in anxious times like ours. The Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, was traveling around Western Asia and Southern Europe, and he was telling people about Jesus. And one of the places that he made a stop was in a city in Greece called Thessalonica. And you can read all about the narrative of his visit to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. If you flip to a different portion of the New Testament, you can read the story of what happened when Paul visited Thessalonica for the first time. He goes to the local synagogue there, the place where people are already worshiping the God of Jesus, right? The God who Jesus calls Father. And and Paul starts worshiping with them and telling people about what Jesus has done and how the story has progressed and continued because of Jesus. And he teaches them about how Jesus died for humanity and teaches them about how Jesus ascended into heaven after he was resurrected from the dead. Teaches them about how Jesus promised that he was going to come back one day and take all of his followers so that they could live with him 
forever. But the problem in Thessalonica was that not everybody believed what Paul had to say. Some of the people in that synagogue decided that not only did they not agree with what Paul was preaching, but they took great offense. They took issue with him saying what he was saying. And so the other members of that synagogue there, they went and they recruited a mob, it says in Acts 17. They recruited a mob and they attacked the homes of the brand new Christians who were hosting Paul and his team of missionaries. Can you imagine what this must have been like? I mean, we're talking about people who had been Christians for a few days, maybe a few hours, and immediately on their faith journey, immediately in their spiritual story, their faith comes under tangible, physical attack. The story in Acts 17 says that the mob attacked the homes of these new Christians and put some of them in jail, and Paul and his friends had to be smuggled out of the city under the cover of darkness. And so these Thessalonian Christians, they're a unique bunch, right? Because their faith in Jesus came under fire as soon as it was born. Like immediately, the first thing that happened after they said yes to Jesus was that their community said no to them, right? Like this is a hard road. And the joy of their salvation quickly ran headlong into the reality of persecution. And they wondered, how long, how long is it going to be like this? Is this what being a Christian is going to be like? If I trust this story, is my life always going to be harder than it was before? That's the questions that they're asking. Am I going to have to endure these hardships? How long is it going to be before Jesus' promise to return becomes reality? And their friend and teacher, Paul, is very concerned. Concerned about their stamina, concerned about their endurance, concerned about their commitment. He's concerned that they might become so discouraged by what's happening in their city that they might lose hope about Jesus' future return. And so that's why Paul writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. This is the letter that's in our Bible, but it's a letter from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And the purpose of this letter is to encourage them to stay the course. He's trying to say, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't let what's happening temporarily and immediately and contextually and locally, don't let all of that get in the way of your faith. And so in the context of this letter, Paul's given them encouragement. He's given them advice. He's given them a strategy for staying the course. And it's all based on this. It's all based on living in the present as if the future is already a sure thing. Living in the present as if the future has already been solidified. He's talking about living through difficulty knowing that there's something better coming. And I want to read for you just a few verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Paul is giving kind of a closing pep talk. This is the last chapter of the, of the letter. He's given a closing pep talk with these instructions to these young Christians. Here's what he says, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what's good, reject every kind of evil, and may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you or purify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one who calls you is faithful, he says, and he will do it. Now, if you have this passage open in your Bible or on your phone, and you look back to the first couple of verses that I read, beginning in verse 16, you'll notice that Paul fills this passage up with a bunch of imperative instructions, okay? He's not offering advice anymore. He's not making suggestion. He's giving instruction to young Christians about how they should live, all right? He's teaching his pupils in the faith about how they should carry on. And these instructions seem to be centered on staying positive, keeping your chin up in the midst of all the difficulty, all right? He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, trust the Spirit, abstain from every form of evil. Can we be honest? This sounds like a very pastory kind of list, right? I mean, like, I can admit that. This is the kind of list that you would expect a pastor to give, like, anybody. Like, they could just have printouts of this in the office, you know? Like, you're having trouble in your spiritual life here. This, like, this is the prescription. You know, this is the kind of thing you expect Paul to say. He's prescribing a habit of good spiritual practices that would be good for anybody to follow. But let's also acknowledge that when you're in the midst of the mess, like when you're in the dark days, when your city has turned on you like they've done in Thessalonica, when you are facing persecution, some of these practices are like ninja level spiritual skills at that point, right? That is not easy to do. How are you supposed to rejoice always when there's a lot of ugly stuff happening around you? Like, how are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to give thanks in all circumstances when some of your circumstances are miserable? I don't think this is just Paul's boilerplate answer to every spiritual problem. I don't think Paul's being naive or being dismissive. I don't think that he's trying to just pretend as if there's no problem. He's not just telling you to put blinders on and just imagine yourself in a different place. I don't think he's suggesting that things aren't real and aren't difficult. I think what Paul is trying to do is to remind his readers that since we already know the final outcome of this story and where this world is headed, that knowledge can help us live today with a different confidence. When we already know where the story is going, it changes how we live out this chapter. I don't know how many of you got a chance to this past Thursday night to watch the NFL Thursday night football game. It was an unusual game. The Los Angeles Chargers traveled to Las Vegas to play the Raiders, and the teams had identical win-loss records going into this game. So you would imagine that they were kind of evenly matched this late in the season. But the Chargers were playing without their starting quarterback. He'd been injured, and the Raiders just, like, showed up with a fire to play, you know. And so they got off to a hot start. The Raiders scored touchdowns on their first three drives, and the, the Chargers just couldn't answer that, couldn't do anything in, in response, couldn't make any progress. And so by the time they got to halftime the score was Raiders 42 Chargers 0 and I don't know what the conversation was like in the locker room at halftime on the Raiders side 
I imagine that there was some hooting and hollering going on, you know, some excitement, some confidence. I imagine that there was some celebration that was happening, and probably one of the coaches probably had to say, hey, tone it down. We got to go back out there and play some more, right? I imagine that as, as they had demolished and demoralized their opponents in the first half, they probably couldn't imagine there was any possible way that the Chargers would come back. I think the Raiders knew at halftime, we're going to win this game. But even with that confidence, they still had to go back out there, right? Even with the confidence, they still had to go back out there and continue the fight. They had to go play the second half. The Chargers weren't forfeiting. The fans weren't leaving. And so the Raiders had to go back out there, and they had to tackle, and they had to rush, and they had to block, and they had to pass, and they had to defend as if the outcome was still being decided. They had a job to do. They had to keep pushing because the game clock had not reached zero quite yet. But don't you think that second half was easier for them mentally than the first one? Don't you think it was easier to go out there with a 42-point lead and know we've only got 30 minutes left of this? Don't you think it was easier for the Raiders in the second half to play than it was for the Chargers? Because even when they got tackled, even when the Raiders got knocked down, even when somebody threw a penalty against them, don't you think they took some encouragement from the fact that they were starting out with a 42-point lead? I think that's just a shadow of the kind of confidence that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to live with. If we could imagine Paul writing this letter in our context, writing this letter to the Heritage Church, I could imagine Paul in our day using a sports metaphor like that. I can imagine Paul saying, listen, the game clock hasn't quite finished counting down just yet, and I don't know how much longer this is all going to take, but I know this, Jesus has this game in the bag, and you're on the winning team. And so whatever happens in this second half, Whatever you go through in this second half, in these last two quarters, don't let yourself lose hope. Don't forget your joy. Don't let anything steal your joy because God's got this. See, the Christians in Thessalonica learned a lesson that I think it's important for every Christian to understand. And the lesson is this. We live in an in-between time. We live in the time between when some of God's promises have already been fulfilled and some of God's promises are still yet to be fulfilled. One of my favorite authors, Fleming Rutledge, says, We live in a present world characterized by disappointment and brokenness and suffering and pain, but we hold all of that in a dynamic tension with this promise of future glory that has yet to come. It's like we're living with our feet straddling two different eras in history, two different periods of time. Because of where we're standing now, we feel sorrow. But we're also living with this awareness of a future where everything is restored, where everything is redeemed, a future where it's secure and safe, a future that's full of joy, where joy comes naturally. And so we're waiting we're waiting for the commencement of that better future, and we're waiting for the clock to run out on this present age. But, and, we, and, and we live with the sorrow, but we also have the option to choose joy. And that's our challenge. Our challenge is to choose to live as if God's promised future is true. As if God's promised future is a sure thing. Our challenge is to choose joy. 
So this past summer, my family and I got to take our family vacation. We went to the Smoky Mountains, never been there before, East Tennessee, pretty part of the world. And one of the touristy things that we did while we were there is we went to this place where you could walk through these bridges that were hung up high, like 100 feet off the ground in the trees, up in the canopy of the trees. And I let my family go first. (laughs) Out of service, but also because they're all lighter than I am. I thought I'd test those bridges a little bit, you know? And they're, they're walking out there and acting brave and laughing and looking around and having a good time. And I took the first step onto that bridge and it shook. And then, y'all, these, ch- these children the Lord gave me, they start jumping. <laughs> and they're running back and forth on the bridge. And you know what dad's doing? Like four-point stance, Right? I'm holding on tight because I didn't like the feeling of being 100 feet off the ground and the platform I'm standing on just shaking like that. What I was experiencing in the moment, what, what, the, the sensations I was feeling, my stomach being up in my throat, you know, all of those feelings of heights and looking down and all of that kind of stuff was making it hard to trust what I knew I already knew in my mind these cables are perfectly strong and safe. People have been going down the, you know, back and forth on these bridges, not only all day, but all all season, all year. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Nobody's been hurt. Very safe. But it was hard. It was hard to feel the confidence and the joy of the activity and knowing the memories we were making and the views we'd get to see, it was hard to be confident in all of that because of what I was feeling in the moment. And it wasn't until about halfway through, they have like, you know, you go down like 12 of these bridges before you reach the end of the course. It wasn't until about halfway through that I started, started to have enough confidence in the bridge to let myself enjoy the view, to let myself see the mountains, to let myself hear my kids laughing and having a good time and teasing dear old dad, you know, like it wasn't until halfway through that I started to realize I'm going to get through this so I can treat it differently now. I can go through this with less fear. I had to choose trust. I had to choose to lean in to joy And it really is something that sometimes we just have to choose. Douglas Abrams says, in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. Which means it's not going to come natural. It's not going to feel normal. It's not going to feel easy. It's going to require courage, spiritual bravery. I was talking to one of my friends in the first service this morning who heard this message and was thinking about how it intersected with her life. And she, just two weeks ago, had a family member who passed, an extended family member who passed away unexpectedly. She said, it's hard, it's hard to connect to joy right now. 
That's not what comes natural to me. That's not what comes normal to me in this season right now. But I have to choose that. I have to choose that knowing that there is a future where this brokenness is going to be healed, where this, these cracks are going to be restored. I have to choose joy today. Henry Nouwen said it this way. Henry said, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep on choosing it every day. So how do you make that happen? How do you decide to choose joy? I think this is why Paul was telling the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, don't quench the Spirit and what the Spirit's doing in your life and in your community, abstain from all forms of evil. Paul was giving a pretty standard list of spiritual practices, but what he was telling us is if you'll keep walking toward Jesus, if you'll keep in the middle of all of the storm and the mess and the darkness and the unknown and the fear, in the midst of all of that, if you'll keep moving toward Jesus, he says, you're going to keep finding joy. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, he says. So how do you choose joy? One of my favorite songs that I is playing on repeat these days in my office and in my truck is a worship song from Elevation Worship and Tarin Wells called Joy in the Morning. It's not particularly focused on Advent or Christmas, it's just focused on the nature of how God works in our lives. And there's this refrain that keeps going on in the song that says, if it's not good, then he's not done. If what's happening around you isn't good yet, then he's not done. If the brokenness in your life hasn't been restored or redeemed yet, then he's not done. If the fractured relationships haven't been healed and mended, then he's not done. If it's not good yet, then he's not done. And he keeps saying that, and then it says, but there will be joy in the morning. There will be joy in the morning. And choosing joy today means deciding to live today as if the morning is actually coming, as if the joy that's been promised is actually real, as if you have a confidence that God has got this whole situation under control. This is what Advent gives us a chance to do. Advent gives us a chance to look at how God's promises have been coming true for so long and the promises that haven't yet come true are still to come because if it's not good, then he's not done. Can you believe it? 